0: Hi there and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein.
1: And I'm ABC Senior Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce.
0: And it's been a somber and a sobering week here in Washington and across the country as we mourn the massive loss of life from these two shootings, one in Texas, one in Ohio happening just within hours of each other. Of course, after another shooting a week earlier in California, and it has sparked a big nationwide discussion, debate around gun policy, and quite a bit more than that, Mary. This has been a week where we have been debating uh, the meaning of words, the meaning of rhetoric, and the, and whether the president of the United States deserves any culpability uh, in, in inspiring a mass shooter.
1: And Rick, in so many ways, unfortunately, the response that we've seen this week does feel all too familiar, right? We are, we are once again plunged back into a conversation about gun control, about mental health, health, about what this country, if anything, is going to do to stop this horrific rise in gun violence. But yet there is something that feels different this time around. And part of that, I think, is this conversation that you referenced that we are having about the power of words, about the role that we expect our political leaders to play in setting a tone and tenor and the danger uh, those words can have when uh, misconstrued, when they are not used to unite the country, but to divide the country. And it has lit a spark. The question now is whether anything is going to change.
0: And and it puts this president uh, under a a very harsh spotlight. Uh, This is one of the more consequential days of his presidency. President Trump, as we speak, is visiting uh, a hospital and victims' families in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, He'll be heading later in the day to El Paso. Uh, we have not seen this president, uh, quite frankly, uh, rise to the occasion of consoler-in-chief the way we have seen previous presidents do it. And it has been an item that the 2020 candidates are talking about. We're going to talk about how it's recast and recalibrated the race in a few moments. But but keeping our focus first with the president, Mary, he, he did have an initial speech on, on Monday that uh, seemed ripped out of the teleprompter directly to camera, uh, talking about the need for the country to come together, cast aside partisanship. But it didn't it didn't last. Uh, and and it seems to never last with this president.
1: And he did come out and forcefully condemn racism, say that things need to change, call for urgent change, call for a bipartisan push to to do something to prevent this kind of violence. It's always the follow through with Donald Trump that that creates problems because he does deliver a speech that, you know, uh, at face value on paper when you listen to it is exactly what you would expect a president to say. The question is whether his actions back it up.
0: And in this instance, as he's about to board the plane to go to Ohio, he uh, seemed to focus on one of the shootings more than the other. Take a listen.
2: If you look at Dayton, that was the person that supported, I guess you would say, uh, Bernie Sanders, I understood. Uh, Antifa, I understood. Elizabeth Warren, I understood. had nothing to do with President Trump.
0: And a big difference between the, the shooting in Ohio and the one in Texas, and they get lumped together because of the, the timeline, is that uh, in Texas, the stated motivations of the shooter were very political. He wrote a long screed uh, that, that referenced a lot of things that President Trump has done and said, and, and as a avowed white supremacist. In, in the case of Ohio, in Dayton, it appears that this is someone had had left-leaning political views that did not seem to be a factor in, in what uh, what led him to pull trigger.
1: And the big picture here, I think, is that you so quickly see the political finger pointing. Of course, the fallout of these horrific events are often uh, you know viewed through a political lens. But here you have, you know, and, and it is on both sides. I mean, you did see Democrats very quick to point a finger at the president, at his rhetoric, given the fact that the shooter in Texas who went in with the clear intent of killing essentially as many Mexicans as possible, uh, but using some language that seemed very similar to the president's, uh, taking some inspiration from some of the president's rhetoric. And then on the flip side, you have the president quick to point the finger at the left for for perhaps uh, some of the motivation behind the shooting in Ohio. And it just gets very ugly very quickly, especially when you consider that these are leaders who are supposed to be healing a nation.
0: And to take the conversation to what the healing may look like in terms of policy, in terms of bipartisanship, the president is saying that he intends to support new gun legislation. Take a listen.
2: There's a great appetite, and I mean a very strong appetite, for background checks. And I think we can bring up background checks like we've never had before. I think both Republican and Democrat are getting close to a bill on to doing something on background checks.
0: Um, uh, Mary, have we heard anything like this in the past? Uh, we, we, this, this seems vaguely re- reminiscent of other things that might have been said.
1: This is exactly uh, in almost word for word what we have heard from the President after previous shootings. Uh, well, let's just take a listen to what he said after the Parkland shooting last year.
2: Well, we're going to do a lot, but we are going to be very strong on background checks. Uh, I've spoken with many of our people in Congress, our senators, our congressmen and women. And there's a movement on to get something done. We want to be very powerful on background checks. Uh, When uh, we're dealing with the mentally ill, as we were in this last case, he was a very sick person and somebody that should have been nabbed. I guess they had 39 different occasions where they were able to see him or potentially see him. We want to be very powerful, very strong on background checks, and especially as it pertains to the mentally ill.
1: So, of course, that was the president a year and a half ago. Uh, Nothing came of that call. Today, he is reiterating it again. And remember, this is what the overwhelming majority of Americans are looking for. We know there is huge support for increasing background checks. Uh, this is, in many ways, what Americans are asking for. What they want to be hearing. The question is the follow through.
0: And let's talk about the follow through because the politics of gun control have been just stubbornly calcified mm-hmm. for decades now. And the the response after just about every one of these mass shootings, and you have this moment of mourning and, 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 and introspection, is has been one of wow, this, why does this not happen anywhere else? And shouldn't there be something that's done? And then and then people move on. What's the the realistic portrait? Now, Mary, there there are a number of pieces of legislation that are floating around. There are a couple that have passed the House that would specifically deal with different elements of background checks, but what's what realistically are we talking about?
1: Well, there are the, these bills that are in the House. they've passed through the House with a narrow amount of bipartisan support that would require universal background checks, those measures that we know so many Americans are looking for, but they've been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk since February. And they have not been been brought up for a vote. Democrats now, of course, are demanding uh, that Mitch McConnell bring lawmakers back from recess here to Washington to have a vote on this legislation. And we have seen, you know, a slowly growing uh, number of Republicans coming out in the last few days and voicing support for some kind of strengthened background checks. Now, the president saying that they're close to, to getting this done that might be a bit of a stretch. But but there is, you know, we are hearing calls from Capitol Hill to do something. There is some bipartisan support for doing something. The question is just, what are you going to do? And there are a lot of proposals. And which one gets action?
0: And notably, Mary, uh, Congressman Mike Turner from, from Dayton is among mm-hmm. those who's now saying that, uh, that uh, though he's a conservative Second Amendment uh, backing Republican, he does think that there needs to be room for new legislation. I think, though, there's a sense that if the president said, this is what I am going to support, that could change votes.
1: Well, and that's part of the problem here is that Capitol Hill, again, is looking to the White House for some direction. And so there are a range of options on the Hill, but the president needs to put some political muscle behind one of these. And I think if the president came out strongly and sort of put the pressure on Republicans on Capitol Hill, gave them some cover to say, look, this is okay. we're going to do this now, that would mean a lot. But until he does that, I have a really hard time seeing Mitch McConnell suddenly changing course and pushing firmly for, for, for stricter background checks.
0: Yeah, so you have these two house back bills, one of the universal background checks, the other... Uh, strengthening the FBI's ability to conduct the background checks the so-called Charleston loophole that would extend the FBI's uh, timeline to, to to take someone uh, someone's background information and process it uh, separate than that though we've heard a lot of talk about so-called red flag laws which are done at the state level not at the federal level but there's talk about a, a, a bill that the Senator Rubio Senator Graham have have backed that would essentially make it easier to flag individuals that might have mental mental problems I, I'm curious on this if this is where Republicans wind up landing as opposed to more stringent gun controls.
1: Yeah, this is one of those measures that that right now seems may stand the best chance of actually getting through Congress right now. Uh, We've seen the number two Republican in the Senate, John Thune, come out and say that he thinks there is an ability to get some common ground on this issue. It does also seem that the president is open to this, given his, his recent statements. We know that Lindsey Graham, of course, one of the president's top allies, has put forth some legislation on this. And as you mentioned, what these laws would do is essentially make it easier to take guns away or keep them out of the hands of people who seem to pose an imminent danger. It would allow family members or police officers to go to the courts and get essentially a temporary order to to take away firearms from people who seem to pose a threat. Uh, Democrats are on board with this. They think it's a great idea. They think, of course, that it falls far, far short and that more needs to be done. But in the current political climate... Uh, it seems that that uh, stands a better chance right now today uh, of seeing more momentum than, than background checks.
0: Yeah, and I'll be curious to see if the Democrats sort of left the Republicans off the hook on that and, and back that, if that's the only thing that can actually pass. L- let's talk 2020, Mary, because it's only a week ago that the Democrats uh, wrapped up their second series of debates. Uh, we were both there in Detroit when the main thing, main policy item that the Democrats argued over was, uh, was health care. And and how to achieve universal health care? Do you do it through Obamacare or Medicare for all? And whether Barack Obama's presidency um, was essentially liberal enough—that is ancient history. Feels like
1: a lifetime ago,
0: right? The campaign totally reset over the weekend, Um, among other things. Democrats. Remembering that they agree on a whole lot more than they disagree, including the urgency of defeating President Trump. And I think we've seen a, a resurgence of one candidate in particular, El Paso's own Beto O'Rourke, who has taken himself off the campaign trail. He's not even going to the Iowa State Fair. Uh, he's been tangling with the president, uh, and in part because he's going there. He's going there directly. Take a listen.
1: You know the shit he's been saying. He's he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I I don't know. Like members of the press, what the f- Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He is promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country.
0: And the question was a pretty innocuous one, just basically, what, mm-hmm. what else does the president need to do? But, but clearly, his um, his passions are real on this, and he's come out and said the president is an open and avowed racist. He is a white supremacist, and his rhetoric leads to violence. As direct as as I can recall, any uh, at any time, a uh, candidate for president laying a tragedy at the president's feet directly.
1: And you can hear that for Beto O'Rourke, this is raw. This is personal. You can hear the anger and frustration in his voice. I mean, this is his hometown. But what's interesting is the response has been very quick, not just and this is from the candidates across the board, not just to immediately go to that kind of familiar conversation about gun control measures and mental health and what can be done legislatively. But a, but a personal attacks on the president and his leadership. All of the 2020 candidates using this as an opportunity to essentially cast President Trump as unfit to lead this nation.
0: That's right. I think it, almost that directly, and and, and I think it uh, it moved very quickly from gun control mm-hmm. to this to this broader conversation. I also think it, it's an opportunity and an opportunity for a voice to be heard for uh, for the former HUD secretary Julian Castro, who's the only Latino. Um, In in this race, he's also from the state of Texas, the San Antonio area, former mayor of of San Antonio. Uh, And his point that that there's something different about the attack in El Paso um, and the way it links up to the president's rhetoric. For a president now to base his entire
2: political strategy on turning the Latino community and especially recent immigrants into the other, into the danger toward America, uh, it doesn't
0: belong in this country he doesn't belong as president, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I
1: know that I'm running to replace him, and I bet that a lot of other people who are in this race feel the same way.
0: Mary Bruce, I'm curious how the Latino community broadly reacts to this because you have, in this case, someone who said he, was, he wanted to go someplace that he could shoot a lot of Mexicans. Directly targeting people because of their ethnic background, Uh, choosing a location in El Paso, hundreds of miles from where he lived in the Dallas area, because he thought there'd be a lot of Mexicans there. Literally, you can see Mexico from the parking lot of this Walmart.
1: And you can only imagine the level of real fear that so many of these communities are feeling today. Real fear. Uh, and concerned that the president essentially doesn't have their backs in this fight. And I think it's important to remember that it was not too long ago that we were talking about the president, you know, making comments about four congresswomen of color saying that they should go back to the countries that they came from, even though three of the four of them were born uh, here in the U.S. And of course, that clip that we now have seen and heard uh, over the past several days, the president in a rally where where someone suggested that that immigrants should be shot and the president didn't tell them to cut it out or or step in and intervene. And so this is why the president is in such a difficult position and why I think so many Americans are wondering, is this going to change? How much impact does the president's rhetoric really have? How much can you hold him responsible? Uh, And going forward, is he going to dial it back when it seems that, so far, it is part of his political strategy to try in some ways to, to exploit divisions in this country for political gain.
0: And, and I would want to turn the conversation to the former vice president, uh, Joe Biden, because it seems like it's a major moment for him mm-hmm. as well. He, of course, is is a white male. He's not he's not of color. He, he can't relate in the same way. But he launched his campaign. His campaign video was about Charlottesville and about the very fine people on both sides lined from the president. And he has made clear this his campaign is about – trying to restore the moral fabric of america and this is what he has had to say
2: this is hatred pure and simple and it's being fueled by rhetoric that is so divisive and it's
0: causing causing people to die and once again laying it at the president's feet
1: directly and then today i mean he took it up a notch even further he laid attacks against this president that i think are further than he's gone before. I mean, he said today in a speech in Iowa that the president has no moral leadership, that he that Trump has no interest in unifying the nation. Take a step back. That is pretty harsh uh, language against the president. And Biden is seizing the moment to once again cast himself in many ways uh, as the great unifier, as the adult in the room, as the proven leader who can come back in and, and, and be that consoler-in-chief that, that he says Trump cannot.
0: We should also know, Mary, that this this the events over the weekend prompted Barack Obama to break his relative uh, political silence. A long statement that he put out did not mention President Trump by name, but man, it didn't didn't, have to. It didn't have to. It was clear what he was talking about and calling on Americans to repudiate the words uh, that are that are fueling the hate and fueling the violence and. A lot of people continue to ask what Obama's next act will be, how involved he'll be in this. I know I've talked to Obama aides that say that he does not want to get into a firing match with President Trump, that Trump, that's exactly what he wants. Yet he felt in this moment that he couldn't stay away.
1: And I think you have to remember how deeply personal in many ways all of these events are for Barack Obama. The Sandy Hook shooting was the worst day of his presidency. Um, we saw over and over again Obama put in the position of having to go to these communities, much in the same way Donald Trump is today, to try and console yet another grieving community. And for him, I think it is incredibly rare for him to speak out. He clearly felt compelled that this was an incident where or two incidents where he couldn't simply stay on the sidelines. But he doesn't want to get into a political tit for tat with Donald Trump. And yet that's exactly what we saw happen. Donald Trump quickly tweeted out uh sort of slamming Obama for for taking him on on this issue and noting that, you know, Bush never slammed Obama for his handling uh, of so many of these shootings. And I don't think you're going to hear much more from Obama, but he does choose his moments carefully. And. He did not mention Trump by name, but man, the message was loud and clear.
0: Yeah. And some echoes of Obama we should mention in Cory Booker, um, who, um, of course, an African-American senator from New Jersey. He chose the site of of a horrible massacre and also one of the the best remembered moments of the Obama presidency, the Charleston AME Church. uh, That was the, the, the site of that awful shooting. We remember President Obama when he addressed the nation from that. I think it goes is one of the top three or four moments of the Obama presidency, uh, the, the ones that are clipped for history. Uh, this was Cory Booker, what he had to say uh, this, uh, today, this Wednesday morning.
1: It was sowed by those who spoke of an infestation of disgusting cities, rats and rodents, talking about majority-minority communities. It was sowed by those who've drawn an equivalence between neo-Nazis and those who protest them sowed from the highest office in our land, where we see in tweets and rhetoric, hateful words that ultimately endanger the lives of people in our country, people of color, immigrants, of us all.
0: You can hear it in Cory Booker's voice, the way that he felt this and the way that so many people in that church and across the country have felt this moment. And Mary, I guess the political question for me is how, how long this moment lasts, mm-hmm. how relevant and resonant it is, because like so many things in this news cycle, we move on, people move on. This president is great at capturing a new news cycle and moving us in different directions. But if the, the, if the populace of this country seems to feel the way it does after a moment like this come election day next year, that's a much different calculus for President Trump. Uh, than if we've moved on to other things.
1: Yeah. And so often in the past, we've seen a lot of it depends on how the public keeps up this conversation. Right after Parkland, we saw so many members of that community, so many students just intent on not letting this conversation die. It depends on what happens on the Hill. I mean, they are out in recess until after Labor Day. Um, Are Democrats able to keep up the political pressure on Republicans to act on this? And in terms of what happens out on the campaign trail, I think one of the interesting things about this issue is, it's not necessarily an issue that a lot of people vote on. Um, it is important to a lot of voters. But when you ask voters, you know, what's the number one issue for you at the top of your mind when you go into the into the ballot box, uh, you often hear health care, you don't hear gun control, you don't hear, uh, you know, voting for someone because of their plan to tackle rising gun violence. Is that changing? Um, and what impact will that have? Uh, I think that depends on, on this will be a voter driven conversation in many ways.
0: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with one of our campaign reporters on the trail. She has been in El Paso all week, one of the first reporters uh, who was on the scene and been uh, following all the developments. Uh, Stay tuned. And welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined now by Lisette Rodriguez, one of our uh, campaign reporters, one of the so called embeds who've been out there covering this. And, and she was out uh, in Nevada covering a presidential forum over the weekend when the news broke in El Paso. She uh, quickly got on the first flight that she could get there and was one of the first reporters, the uh, first national reporters on the ground. And she also covers the Better War campaign, among others. And, and Lisette, what, what has it been like? I mean, thinking about this. You're, you're obviously you're covering politics, but this is a this is so much bigger than that. Uh, the, the sights and the sounds that you've seen over the couple of days, how have people been processing the news in El Paso?
2: I think the the main thing that I keep hearing from people is one, they're shocked that this massacre would happen here, but two, that they almost don't know how to feel. They don't know how to process their emotions. They don't know if they should be upset, sad, angry or just numb. Uh, And and it's a lot of people just trying to figure out, you know, what am I feeling? And what should I do with these emotions right now?
1: You know, we see the conversation happening back here in Washington, right, the bigger political conversation, especially surrounding the president's uh, rhetoric. Is that a conversation that's happening on the ground as well? Or or is that something that that's really, you know, only happening at the 50,000 feet view?
2: It is absolutely happening here. I mean, uh, as soon as we heard the news that President Trump would be visiting El Paso, uh, me and my colleague went around talking to El Pasoans uh, throughout this town, asking, you know, how are you feeling? And and how do you feel about President Trump coming? A lot of people were bewildered. They don't understand why he would come here because they feel like his rhetoric in some part caused what happened in El Paso. Uh, and the bigger picture here is that people are definitely talking about gun legislation. We've talked to two people, uh, veterans especially, who say, you know, I am for gun rights. I have a conceal and carry permit, um, but I don't think people should have assault weapons. And Lissette, uh, how, what,
0: in terms of the politics of this, we've seen one of the candidates you cover, Beto O'Rourke, who's from El Paso, amazingly passionate, really fired up, sometimes explicitly so. Uh, you got to bleep some of his bleep some of his words, like we did earlier in the show, talking about mm-hmm. this. Uh, he has truly, truly reset his campaign around this, around El Paso around the president's rhetoric and this is a we know beto is a is a kind of cautious politician at times uh and i think that was on display as recently as the debates last week he has thrown caution to the wind it seems to me in the in these last couple of days what, what's the campaign telling you about how he is feeling about this and, and 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 how he views this moment
2: he views this moment as a time where he has to be home uh he told us just you know, an hour or two ago that he actually won't be going to the Iowa State Fair that he was scheduled to speak at uh, Friday morning. So he told us that he has not thought about when he will return to the campaign trail uh, because it, to him, it is important to be with his El Pasoans.
1: And how has the reaction been to to his, I think, new tone out on the campaign trail? Has it been well received by his supporters down there? Do they think he's going too far? I mean, he's been pretty political in his attacks against the president.
2: He he has been very political, but the people here, I, I mean, they, they love Beto. They, they do. And they appreciate that he is calling out President Trump for what they think was the language and the actions that, that caused someone to come and shoot people because they were Mexican. People here are very supportive of him. Just an hour ago, when we were at his event, people held a prayer circle with him and prayed for him to win this election to represent El Paso and the light that they think it should be represented.
0: And and, and finally, we said I want to talk about El Paso because it, it is it, there's a power there's powerful symbolism in the city. The president chose it uh, and has singled the city out and chose it for a rally to to try to make his political points. We remember that Beto O'Rourke. Did a counter rally, but it truly is a city of immigrants. People, uh, El Pasoans, referring to it as a modern day Ellis Island. Uh, and in, in, in this, in this case, uh, when with the initial outrage and, and shock and horror around all of it, the idea that Mexicans and Mexican Americans were targeted simply because who they are—that's got to be of, spe- of special and specific resonance to people on the ground.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm sorry to get personal, but I'm Mexican American myself, and. There are so many people here who are bilingual, only speak Spanish or have these immigrant backgrounds and they themselves feel targeted and they have told us that they don't know that they feel safe to be outside. But it's really striking to see how the people here have come together to to tell everyone here we are here for one another and we are truly all past so strong.
0: All right, Lisette Rodriguez. Thank you, and to our entire ABC team that's out there covering uh, this story. I know it's been a, a, a gut-wrenching couple of days, and you're doing terrific work uh, there on the ground. So, best to you and to the team. Thank you, Lisette.
2: Thank you.
0: And, and Mary, I, I, you know, this isn't the first time of the Trump presidency or of any presidency where we've uttered the words that this time feels different. And it, it, it's, it, it shocks me personally how quickly. I forget that feeling as a reporter, as a political reporter uh, moving on to the next story because the news cycle moves moves just with this intense and, and insane speed. President Trump is seems like the only one often that can keep up with it and keep the direct it. It, it is a, a real test of leadership in the country to see how long the moment lasts and what the moment means.
1: Yeah, and I think what's different about this one in some ways – is the response, right, is the fact that you see so many political leaders, and that's partly because we are in the middle of a presidential campaign, seizing this moment and saying, we're not going to let this just blow by. We're not going to just say, oh, Congress isn't going to do anything and move on to the next subject, the next headline. Um, The question, of course, is how long are they really going to keep that up? But for so many people, this is... This is tough stuff, and it is deeply emotional, it is deeply personal, and it keeps happening over and over and over again, and we don't see any movement at all. You see a lot of talk, very little, no political action, and what is different about this time is that the level of frustration seems to get ratcheted up every time we see another one of these incidents, and you just hope that that means that eventually uh, we won't be having this conversation again.
0: And it's a and it's a reminder. The other another thing that makes it different is that you have a president who speaks in a different way and in an often outrageous and outlandish way about immigrants, about others. That views political battles as as all-consuming and all important, and cast it in that way. And look, we've had Trump supporters point this out. The president himself pointing out that you know George W. Bush never blamed Barack Obama mm-hmm. for the Charleston shooting. Well, you know Barack Obama didn't incite violence in any way like this didn't say things that could be construed in that way and I look I I think it is a fair point to say that President Trump didn't pull any triggers of course that's true and to, 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 to say directly that because someone said something someone else did something else that is that is not a, a fair through line to draw but if if you listen to what the president says uh, it is it is a fair. Uh, it is a fair conclusion to draw uh, that uh, that that there are people that could hear that and decide to act on it in unstable and, and awful ways. And I we are beyond I think the point of thinking that the president's going to change the way no. he speaks. He's not going to suddenly say, you know what, I was right. You were, you were right. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said those things. Clearly, that's mm-hmm. that's done. But his reaction still is critical. He's still the president. And the way he conducts himself in these hours, in these days, I think will be defining for him.
1: Yeah. And you are right. He is not going to change. Um, And it is a difficult process to go through to see all of the political finger pointing, because for communities that are grieving, communities that are in fear, uh, political finger pointing isn't much solace. You just hope that the political finger pointing reaches such a level that it does lead to action, that it does lead to something that can bring some comfort to this country. Um, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, and, the, and as you said, the context of the 2020 campaign, the race looks a lot different mm-hmm. uh, today than it did a week ago uh, in the wake of uh, the second series of debates. Uh, thank you to Mary Bruce. Thank you to our entire team, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, to Lissette for dialing in, and for uh, her colleague Jeff Cook for helping out on the ground as well. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. We'll be back next week with another edition. Stay tuned.